and a lot of them were actually influenced our affordability. What about our everyday behavior and habits? Some of them might deteriorate as we go upwards in the financial bracket. What about our daily mood? Could all these give information for much earlier warning indicators, or indicators for affordability, or indicators for impulse purchases, and so on? When it comes to mood, think of texting. When we text, what do we use other than words? We use smileys, emoticons. If you go to emojitracker.com, you will see that view. This is tracking every single emoticon that's being used on Twitter on real time. Millions and millions of emoticons every single day, and this is only Twitter. If you look on Instagram, by analyzing the attributes of photos being uploaded, they've been able to identify depression with 70% accuracy. The examples don't stop here. We all carry mobile phones now, so we've been tracked in terms of geolocation. One knows where our work is, where our home is, because of the overnight component of where the phone stays. Even when we're typing, we're leaving a unique signature between the dimensions of inter-key time, speed of typing, pressure dynamic, and position of our fingers. So all of that could give you insights affecting the riskiness of your life policy, or of a credit line, or even give you soft indicators for fraud, for example. Now, all of this is intriguing when it comes to a business environment and what insights it can give us, but we're all here as clients at the same time, and this could be a little bit scary, doesn't it? Well, there's more of that coming. Do you know that PayPal is the underlying payments platform for Uber? That means that they can track all Uber applications on a phone, which means that at any given time, they know where all Uber cars are. But remember, they don't track the cars, they track their Uber applications. So they know where everybody is with an Uber app on. Now, PayPal is technically a bank, so I assume that they can't get a query and say, from these dots, who are our good clients? There you go. Now, I'm assuming also they can reverse the query and ask, which of these are our bad clients? Now, I'm wondering, what if I'm one of these clients, and I'm already in the legal process with, with PayPal, and they can see that I just got into an Uber? And by the way, is this a driveless Uber? Can they program it to actually lock the doors and drive itself to the police station? Or the <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not, they cannot change my destination. But they know my destination, so they could have legal clicks on scooters going faster in traffic. So I get out of my Uber ride, is this Dimitri, you've been served. Scarier? Now, if PayPal can do that, I'm pretty sure insurers can do that too. We all have telematics now, we have tracking devices in our cars. Our insurer can see pretty much everything. Distance that we're driving, the routes that we're taking, frequency of our driving, time of the day, our driving behavior, where all accidents are taking place. If I look at the two distinct models that are currently being used in the market, one is the pay-as-you-drive model, so your premiums are being adjusted depending on how much you drive. The other one is based on your driving behavior, so you're getting discounts depending on how you're driving. Also, the question is, why not both? They're not mutually exclusive. Why not both and all these dimensions together? And what if my primary need as a client is not price or discount? What if it is proactive protection from distracted driving? Think of a parent that's giving the car to the son or daughter, or think of a company that has professional drivers. Now, proactive protection takes place if you somehow restrict me from using my phone while I'm the driver. Not with a report that comes at the end of the driving session, 
That is not proactive, it assumes I'm still alive. Now, of course, the report that comes after the driving session, together with some discounts, can disincentivize certain behaviors, but it might incentivize the wrong ones as well, unintentionally. My personal experience of why I had to stop a product like that is that I was twice in a situation where I had my wife screaming at me to actually break to avoid accidents in front of me. What we realized was happening is that I was cognitively trying not to harsh break and lose my discount. So in moments like that, actually, my insurer was making me a worse driver. So we have all these dimensions, but let's not forget sometimes what real, real client needs are about. Now, none of these examples is news to you, are they? You've all heard of them. As insurers, a lot of you are already using them. We live in a digital world, and everything we do is recorded and probably forever. So big data is here, and big data is real. We're moving towards becoming a data permission-based economy. What that means is that we're going to be asked to give data for analysis as clients on everything that we do. And the question comes, not what can we do with big data. With, we can do all of that. We can actually do things in ways that we haven't even invented yet. But how are we analyzing that data? And let me share a personal experience. I've been working with large financial institutions, and whenever I ask them to give me large chunks of data for analysis, do you know how it feels? It feels like this. And this is without big data. This is existing data sets. So the question is not what can we do with the data, but how can we do it, at least at the moment. We really need to see data as a tool set. And as any tool is as useful as the way you're using it. And it can literally help you or break you. Now, of course, the question is, what is the element that may determine that outcome? Well, unfortunately, it's not one thing. It's many, many things. So are you ready now for another buzzword? Before I give you the buzzword, let's take a quick step back and look at the history of risk. After the global financial crisis of 2008, we started moving the focus more and more from risk modeling to risk culture. On the fintech space, I wrote an article at Bank Next where I'm discussing the concepts of fintech adoption versus fintech culture. Because no matter how brilliant some of these ideas are, you still need to implement them in the right way, manage the change that they bring in the organization, and eventually use them in a way that you can realize the planned benefits. So now, at the risk of me being accused of sounding completely unoriginal, I'm going to ask you, do you have a big data culture? Which is exactly where Chris Skinner's FIBD is going to start beeping very, very loudly. Chris Skinner is a, a well-known commentator on the fintech space. This is a very useful tool, especially when you're talking to consultants like myself. FIBD stands for the Fintech Bullshit Detector. <laughs> or Buzzword Detector. You can use the word interchangeably. <laughs> so if culture is too much of a buzzword, let's forget culture for a second. Let's think of Lida Glyptis. In one of her articles at Bank Next, Lida is talking about organizational alignment. So she's asking the question, do all departments, stakeholders, individuals, understand their role in this new digital ecosystem? It might look like this. So your product managers, they might not know how to make an API decision, but they should know how to price one. Your operations teams, they might not know or care to know what Hadoop is, but they need to know how to interact with real-time data to drive efficiencies. Sales, they might not know how to run any sort of analytics, but they need to know that flexible product offering that addresses client needs 
is determined by real-time data, who you have in front of you, and not just the product strategy of the year. Alignment is not only important at a technical level. Business alignment is equally important. We've been talking over and over about client needs. And at a the theoretical level, this is actually covered in strategies. If you see any of the strategies from a large financial institution, it says, we want to be a trusted institution to our clients, and we want to be able to serve our clients in the best possible way. So you want to be able to pitch to them the right product at the right time, on the right platform, with the right message, through the right representative, and with the right language. And by language, I'm not referring to the South African 11 official ones, but whether you're talking to me, whether you're talking to millennials, whether you're talking to my parents. Let's see what happens in practice. As a large financial institution, you're probably characterized by very slow decision-making processes. You're going to have meetings after meetings, 150 signatures later, some approvals, but because accountability and responsibility doesn't really sit at the right place, you're going to have committees approving the approvals. You all know what I'm talking about. This is not going to work with real-time decision-taking that big data or client needs might require. Incentivization, KPIs, they're also not aligned with strategy. Why? Is your organization taking decisions that protect your clients or that protect your own revenues? Are you promoting products that serve client needs or that serve your own targets? Think of sales again. You've given salespeople a product target and a volume target for the year. Do you think they could care any less of who they're going to sell that product to, to make the target bonus? Probably not. So misalignment like that, big data or any sort of data is not the problem. Management mentality is the problem. Internal processes, the way decisions are being taken, sometimes by habits. We've always done this this way. Why should we need to change? So you've got resistance to change, the fear of becoming irrelevant, hence all these new CIO positions that are emerging across the organization. And by CIO, I'm not referring to chief information or chief innovation officers, but the chief incumbent officers. Remember, people manage their careers, they don't manage their jobs. If we're managing our jobs, we would go back, read the strategy, and figure out what we need to do. Now, for misalignments like that, and for cultural, well-embedded cultural issues, big data cannot solve those. Remember, big data is a tool set. And we also said that it can be a very big risk as well. And because we're talking about data here, let's not forget our usual suspects. Some of them. Causation and data interpretation. Unless you're operating in a very stable environment, you really want to understand what causes the correlations from the data. Otherwise, you wouldn't know what's going to break them. You probably heard of the Google flu trend example and how it failed miserably because of the lack of theory behind it. When it comes to interpretation, we saw, for example, billions and billions of emoticons that, that are being generated only on one platform. Can you actually translate that data to being real mood, though? Am I just illustrating what I feel, or am I boiling in anger when I post that, that emoticon? And even if you could, can we actually extrapolate that just because it's billions of them to the public's mood or the industry's moods? which brings us to sample bias and sample error. It's still relevant. My favorite, my favorite example here is from the US elections in 1936, where the Republican Alfred London stood for elections against the then-president Franklin Roosevelt. One of the biggest and most expensive polls uh, back then, with 2.4 million respondents, actually got the, uh, the result of the election completely wrong. 
A much smaller sample with only 50,000 responses actually got it very close to being right. So yes, a bad-chosen big sample can be much worse than a well-chosen small one. And in this example, non-response bias was also relevant and it was not taken into account because the 2.4 million response were out of 10 million surveys that were actually distributed. Applicability. We've seen a number of insights that big data can give you that might be very useful on the retail side for product development, for marketing, time, platforms and so on. But if you take the exact same buckets and use them when you're building an IFRS 9 model for impairments, this might actually break those models. And we've seen a couple of examples during model validations for that. Now, these are not the only usual suspects. You know very well as actuaries and statisticians, after what, you've been dealing with that for hundreds and hundreds of years of understanding what are the risks, the problems, and the traps that lie in wait when you try to understand the world through data. So let's not forget and neglect what we already know. So as we get more and more data, and as we try to improve our capabilities, it's important to understand what is our position across what we call the analytics maturity curve. You hear a lot about how financial institutions are descriptive and only backward-looking, and of course we want to go to being predictive and forward-looking. On the one axis, that's going to be your competitive advantage. What is important to see is that the horizontal axis doesn't say AI and machine learning, doesn't say analytical skills, it says complexity. Because AI and machine learning will not just get you along that curve, it's one of the components. So you really need to understand what keeps you in being descriptive. Some examples, data government, governance, data silos, inconsistent terminologies, libraries and, dictionary and, uh, and data dictionaries, misaligned KPIs, disconnect of departments, so department silos. So it's a number of things pointing back to the organizational culture. So you need to understand all these dimensions in order to take you upwards. And while you're doing that, let's not forget issues of privacy, security, risk, regulation. They're going to amplify your headaches because these dimensions start becoming more and more complex as we go along. Just because you're in South Africa, the Poppy Act, so the protection of uh, personal information, is not the only thing you should be looking at. As you interact with different entities and clients across the globe, you all of a sudden might be under the European GDPR, or the UK one, or the Canadian one, and they do have differences. So let's understand that there are a number of dimensions that will take us through that curve. So where to from here? I'm probably not going to surprise you. It's going to go where you think it's going to go. You've heard it a number of times, you're going to hear it from me as well. Start with the question, not the data, in order to get a good direction of where you want to go. And the question is, what are you trying to achieve? And make sure you ask that question continuously and consistently across the dimensions. What are you trying to achieve for your clients? What are you trying to achieve for the organization? Value for the organization might not always be value for the client. It is very, very easy especially these days, with all the fintechs, the startups, to fall in love with a solution. But falling in love with a solution, you might then be in a place where you try to find problems to apply to. So, summary of where we are, where we want to go. As a large financial institution, you're probably here. You're data-rich. And as institutions, we're data-rich already. The challenge is that we're inside poor. Now, of course, we want to be data-rich and inside-rich, And there's a number of dimensions that we need to look at and improve before we become that. Now, with big data, 
oh, we can be data super rich. But if you don't look at all the dimensions that you need to pay attention to, we can still stay inside poor. We're going to still be looking for needles. The haystacks are just much, much bigger. Now, certainly we want to be data super rich and inside super rich. So three things to remember. Number one, start with the question, not the data. Number two, in 2008, there was a controversial essay in Wired that was called The End of Theory. It was arguing, among other things, that with enough data, the numbers speak for themselves. And according to David Spiegelhalter, he's a Winton professor at Cambridge University, this is complete bollocks and absolute nonsense. Excuse his language. Because he says you need to be very careful of over-optimistic simplifications of what the data can do for you. So, beware of theory-free. And number three, you need to understand your capabilities and what you're trying to fix across a number of dimensions. A lot of them will sit under organizational culture. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thanks, Dimitri, for that interesting uh, talk. Uh, we now have about six minutes to take any questions, if there are any, on Dimitri's talk. Yes. Okay. Um, there's a hand here in the middle, if there's a roaming mic, or I could just walk up to you. Um, you skipped quite quickly over the big brother aspects of all of this. Uh, would you like to say a little bit more about that? I, I did skip quite quickly because of the interest of time, but it's one of the most important topics to all of us, whether we are actuaries, I'm actually not an actuary, whether you, we are clients. I mentioned right after that slide, or two slides after that, that we're moving towards becoming a data permission-based economy. And I mentioned that we're going to be asked as clients to give data on everything that we do for analysis. Allow me to say, including when we go to the bathroom and which button we press, the small one or the big one. It might, it might sound facetious, but you're all aware of wearables. Some wearables are, are tracking our sweat as well, so they can understand medical information about our body fluids. Some of you might have heard of swallables. If not, have a look at Proteus Group. They've invented a pill. It has a tiny mechanism inside. It's the size of the grain of sand. It gets activated by your stomach liquids, and it gives you, on your phone, basically information about your body. So now, that bathroom example is not that funny anymore. It's actually FDA-approved, so it is operational. It's not sci-fi. One of the companies I was talking after a workshop that I ran in Chicago was telling me that they're actually asking users, it's still on a beta version, of giving them their Gmail uh, account passwords. They don't care on reading your emails. What they do run analytics on is how your mailbox is organized. How long do you take to reply? When do you do reply? Because they're also uh, giving credit. They don't have a banking license, they don't need one, they don't take deposits. So, yes, actually, we're going to be requ required, or at least asked, with certain incentivizations to give data. Now, if I look at applications on a mobile phone that can actually record your voice, and again, not about what you say, but how you say it, your breathing patterns and so on, they correlate that data with, uh, um, with people that have asthma, and they can refer you to the doctor. 